This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Coming up on the show shortly, we're going to be talking with our special guest today. We've got um, Rob Anderson, CEO of um, Musculoskeletal Australia, and Associate Professor uh, Christian Barton, uh, who works both in research and private practice, um, treating sports and musculoskeletal patients in Melbourne. Radiotherapy uh, listeners, very wise. But did you know that musculoskeletal conditions are the second largest contributor to disability worldwide? Hmm. With low back pain being the single leading cause of disability globally. So we're going to find out a bit about that. Um, And we're going to demystify a little bit. We're going to find out that it's not just issues for the aged. It happens at all stages of life and in all sorts of circumstances. We'll talk through a variety of scenarios. So by the end of the hour, we're going to know a whole lot more about back pain, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoporosis, um, and a whole lot more, I'm sure. There's probably a few that I've forgotten. I think gout's in the mix there somewhere as well. We'll find out. Um, You might be listening on your wireless, uh, streaming on the Triple R app or via um, the website, or you may be in the future listening back to us on demand um, or on the podcast. However, and wherever you are, by the end of the hour... um, all that relates to bones, muscles, joints, cartilages, ligaments, tendons. Uh, we're going to know all about it by the end. We'll be back shortly with Rob and Christian. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
Welcome back, Radiotherapy. It's Panel Beater going solo today. Um, but I'm joined in the studio um, by Rob Anderson and uh, soon to be, not currently, Associate Professor Christian Barton. Welcome, guys. Morning. Thanks for having us, Ken. Great to have you in. Great to have you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, so we're talking all things musculoskeletal. Um, maybe just kick us off with the, my, my comment um, a bit earlier, Rob, about how it's the world's biggest, second biggest disability and lower back pain is the world's single biggest. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's, um, it's very prevalent. There's over 7 million Australians with musculoskeletal conditions. Back pain, 3.7 million Australians. Uh, osteoarthritis, 2.1 million. Osteoporosis, um, 800,000. Uh, We've got a an epidemic, essentially, of musculoskeletal uh, problems, and uh, it's, it's quite pervasive, and it has serious sort of implications for people's lives and the quality of their lives. Yeah, yeah. Like, in preparation for today, I was just doing, like, a mental check um, of people I know and also thinking of my own uh, circumstances, and... It was so easy to come up with a long list of people I know that have got something going on that I think falls under the umbrella of musculoskeletal. I think the other thing too is it's a hidden condition as well, so uh, you, you don't see it. So I think it, it flies under the radar, but it has, again, some really serious consequences for people, both from a mental health perspective and obviously the physical impediments, not sleeping, having to deal with their pain, you know, not being able to work, not being able to go to school. Yep. Um, um, relationship issues, dependence on drugs and alcohol. So there's there's a, there's a lot that people are having to endure to to deal with. Yeah. yeah, and you're you're here with your hat as CEO of um, Musculoskeletal Australia. So we're going to learn a lot about what you guys do and um, how you connect with um, the community you serve. Um, and Christian, you're researching and practicing in uh, this space. You're, you're, what's your, your focus of uh, research at the moment? Yeah, so we're primarily looking at persistent knee pain, and that's anywhere from a younger person with kneecap pain to someone who might do their cruciate ligament and have a knee reconstruction, all the way through to older people with osteoarthritis, and that's probably a focus of what I do in my clinical practice as well, um, and just trying to help them navigate, not just through their pain, but all the other aspects that Rob was just talking about, yeah, right. it's much more complex than just their, their joint pain. So we'll probably uh, jump into some um, case studies uh, in, in, in the show to come. Let's Let's perhaps start with some definitional things. So we use this phrase musculoskeletal. The other thing I learnt was this is a name change from arthritis Victoria. So what what's the relevance of changing it from arthritis to musculoskeletal? Well, I guess musculoskeletal is a, a broader um, spectrum there. So it includes things like back pain and osteoporosis. Uh, so again, the name change was one that uh, befitted the conditions and the, and the range of conditions. Um, and what are those? What, what is the scope? I mentioned sure. a few at the front end of the show, but did I get them all? Uh, I think you got a lot of the main ones, which is, which is really important. But as you said, it's osteoarthritis, it's rheumatoid arthritis, uh, it's, it's back pain, it's osteoporosis, it's gout, yes, and, and a, a, over 150 conditions. So uh, wow. there's, there's a whole range of them. We don't have time, obviously, to <laughs> go <laughs> them off at the moment. Yeah. But, uh, but, yeah, so there's, there, there are a whole range of conditions. And we say, obviously, musculoskeletal is it's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's harder to live with. 
I, I think in my head, until I was preparing, I think I just was calling it musculoskeletal. Um, muscular, obviously, um, makes the distinction there. Um, how does gout fit in, though? Um, well, I it, thought that was a circulatory, and, and I don't say that with any confidence yeah, at all. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a build-up of that uric acid aspect and, and affects particular parts of the body, uh, most notably the big toe. <laughs> the big toe. Yes, yes, it's, it's quite interesting, and, and obviously they're both genetic and other lifestyle issues that are contributors to that condition. Um, how can we start demystifying this idea that it's just old people? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely not just old people because um, that is a, a common uh, uh, misunderstanding. It's actually working age people. So uh, some 58% uh, percent of, of uh, musculoskeletal sufferers are, are working age and it is juvenile arthritis, so kids get arthritis as well. Um, let's, we'll come to look at a couple of case studies, but perhaps can we actually describe what's the clinical condition when we say arthritis? What are we talking about? Yeah, so arthritis can be many different things. So the most common form being osteoarthritis, which is a, a joint change over time. And traditionally, we've looked at that from a structural perspective. And often people will go and they'll get an x-ray done from their GP and they'll look at and they'll say, we've got changes in the bony structures and told they've got bone on bone, etc. But arthritis is a lot more complicated than that because there's inflammatory responses in the joint. And actually, that joint we see in an x-ray is only part of the puzzle. It also affects ligaments and joint capsule, um, can affect muscles around the joint. And so when someone's got arthritis and they've got pain, it's not just about the bones, it's about the whole joint. And then there's all the psychological implications as well, which is what Rob was talking about before. So someone with osteoarthritis will be six or eight times more likely to have psychological distress, and that would drive their pain as well. So it's much more much more complicated than just the joint. And then osteoarthritis being the most common form, but we are we do have a number of other forms of arthritis, um, namely rheumatoid conditions. So rheumatoid arthritis, um, also thinking about conditions like ankylosing spondylitis and various other rheumatoid... Say that last one again. Ankylosing spondylitis. <laughs> okay. Ankylo... Ankylosing spondylitis. Okay, what's that when it's at home? So essentially you have... Uh, it's a systemic inflammatory joint disease and it typically affects the, the spine, so the, the lower back primarily and it's something that's driven by more system factors um, and it's something that actually does lend itself quite well to different pharmacology interventions and so when you do have a rheumatoid type arthritis actually there's a lot of help that you can get from pharmacology pain relief whereas if it's osteoarthritis typically longer term outcomes with with pain medications and those types of things is, is not as good. Right, so with, that starts taking us into um, aspects of treatment. Before we get to that, how about we just look at causes to begin with? So if we're saying that it's not just old people, how does this come onto the radar for young people? Yeah, so I think one of the, the biggest risk factors for developing osteoarthritis in particular is a traumatic injury. So we see this really commonly following a severe traumatic knee injury. So for example, we have a cohort that we're following at Latrobe and we've now followed them for between five and 10 years. And around that five to six year mark, about half of them will be starting to show signs of osteoarthritis on an MRI. And these people are in their late twenties, early thirties. So that's a big risk factor in that young population. In an older population, as we, we get older, typically higher BMI, so higher body mass index right. and, and weight is a really big driver. And the other big, big driver is physical inactivity, so people not being active and not exercising. The, the weight one's interesting to me. Is it 
simply because the body's carrying the weight or is there something about being overweight yeah. it's in and of itself it's a, it's a really good question, Kent, because that's intuitively most people think, oh, we've just got more mechanical load on our joint. But actually research tells us that osteoarthritis is more common in people or higher risk in people who ha- who for hand. So if you've got higher BMI, you're more likely to develop hand osteoarthritis. And that's typically not a load-bearing joint. Mm. So it tells you that it's much more complicated than that. So, so a few things happen when we're overweight. We have more adipose tissue, so fat stores, and that actually causes our whole system to become more inflamed. And if mm. our whole system's more inflamed that's going to increase the risk of arthritis in any of our joints. Um, can also increase the risk of dementia and other chronic diseases as a result. So that's one aspect of it. Um, and certainly we do know that if you can lose some weight, so somewhere between 5 and 10%, that typically has a significant reduction in joint pain at yeah. both the hip and knee. But the question is, is that because of the less mechanical load or is it because of the change in systemic inflammation? Or maybe people just who lose weight just start eating better and start exercising. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah are, are particular joints, as still st- sticking with the various forms of arthritis, are particular joints more prone? I'm guessing knees yep. and hips are the big ones, right? So if we stay with osteoarthritis, which is the most common, then hand is actually the most common form of osteoarthritis, but probably doesn't have the same impact on people's quality of life. Certainly it does. I mean, people who like to use their hands, we all use our hands for things, but it's particularly the knee that's probably the most problematic for people. Um, So it's quite common over the age of of 65, most people are going to have some form of osteoarthritis in their knee and then not too far behind that is the hip. Yeah, right. Um, I've got to ask probably the burning question on everyone's mind, given that you've mentioned hands. Does cracking knuckles cause it? That's a, that's a great question. There's probably there's probably no evidence to suggest that that would be the case. Um, I think it's possibly a myth, but no one's done a great study to look at yeah, right. if we have... It is very annoying, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. um, I, I, we, we touched on it in a whimsical way on this show a while ago. And the only So I play guitar and I crack my knuckles, or I don't crack them as much as I used to, and... Um, one consequence is that the joint on one of my fingers is really loose. So when you're playing bar chords, it gets really sore and tired. Is that giving me a clue that I'm going to end up, you know, riddled in my... If I'm feeling it now, like I get really sore after playing guitar, I'm sure I'm not alone. And people who play instruments and do other crafts with their hands, they probably start to notice the, the flexibility. Is that a sign? Is that a symptom? Yeah, certainly I think having persistent pain and loss of mobility and things like that is certainly a sign early stage that you're going to have arthritis. We, In terms of diagnosing osteoarthritis, and this is not just the hands, but thinking about the knees, clinical guidelines around the world suggest not to have an x-ray, for example, now, because if you've got persistent pain and it's affecting your function and you're starting to get some stiffness, yep. if you go and have that x-ray or MRI, it's going to tell us you've got arthritis. So it doesn't really help us in terms of deciding what to do. So yeah. it probably is a sign that there might be something happening. Probably the biggest sign is the fact that you use your hands all the time to play music. And certainly one of the risk factors for osteoarthritis, we mentioned inactivity as being a really big one, but it's certainly overactivity or overuse of a joint can be part of it as well. The activity question is an interesting one then for the layperson, I think, because on the one hand, we're being told that one of the causes is use of the the joints and that one of the ways to manage it is to stay active. How do we reconcile that? Yeah, so I always talk to patients about a sweet spot of, of activity and too little activity will lead to more chance of arthritis and too much will lead to 
to um, more chance as well. And one of the analogies I often use is a running population. And so if you look at a running population in the community, they think that um, running is bad for your knees and going to develop osteoarthritis as a result. In fact, a recreational runner is less likely to have osteoarthritis than someone that sits on the couch and doesn't do a lot of exercise. So that's really important. And that definition can be quite broad. It might be three or four runs a week, five to ten kilometres. But equally, someone who's an elite runner, runs competitively, runs internationally, goes overseas, then their risk goes back up again and probably starts to match that of the person sitting on the couch. So there's a sweet spot, and that varies for everybody. I think where we go wrong is a lot of people develop pain because of their arthritis, and that starts to cause them to fear exercise and then they stay away from exercise so it's a bit of a boom bust cycle and what we do know now is that pain and damage are really poorly related and a little bit of pain during exercise is really normal so it's just making sure people are aware that yep their knee might be a little bit sore when they do exercise your hand might be a little bit sore when you play guitar mm. but that doesn't mean that you should avoid it you just need to be mindful about how much you do and how your joints respond after and if it settles down quickly you're okay right right you're on uh, triple with myself, panel beater, and we're joined in the studio by um, the CEO of Musculoskeletal Australia, Rob Anderson, and our uh, researcher academic from La Trobe University, Christian Barton. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Rob, um... We mentioned uh, that you're the CEO of Musculoskeletal Australia, and you run a, a, a bunch of services. But one of the things I'm, and we'll and we'll cover off on a lot of those. But one of the things I'm firstly interested in is is how well educated would you say the general public is? And and I'm thinking about the sort of questions people ask when they're first getting in contact with you. Um, are they using the language um, of people who are familiar with what's going on or are they just talking aches and pains and getting you, and you're going to go back from square one? Yeah, I think one of the misconceptions we have is that people understand the health system. Yeah, right. And, and, and upon a diagnosis, it's actually a pretty confusing sort of scenario that you're presented with. So, yeah, we, we have a, a national helpline that assists people navigate. We're very much an organisation about empowering people. So it's a person centred, self-directed approach to them uh, assisting themselves. So we're encouraging a concept of a personal management plan that, uh, that, that everybody should have and they deal with the things like exercise as Christians identified and, and weight management, your medication and well-being and mindfulness. A lot of people that do ring in are ringing in because they're socially isolated and they are very confused about why they're in such such significant pain. So what we do is act as a, in some regards as a, as a triage to find those services that an individual identifies. The goals around your health and well-being, they're determined by yourself. So what we do is try and provide the tools, the information, the services, the programs and connect people to where they can uh, find the assistance that they need because everyone's different yep are they uh, coming to your helpline um with a referral of any sort or are they yeah sometimes yeah sometimes um we have a, a website we're trying to make sure as many people <laughs> know about us as as possible we're also doing some work through community centers nationally this year which we hope will make the issue more salient so we've got the ability through trained uh, nurses to provide that sort of level of support but there's also um a lot of uh, resources 
and information available on our website that uh, can really uh, assist people in determining their future. Are you guys noticing uh, anything we might call trends in this area? Yep, just more people. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the reality is the, the incidents are going up, as I said earlier, over 7 million Australians. It's a 55 billion dollar incursion Say that uh, again. Everett, 55 billion dollars is a cost to it's about do. the equivalent of the mbn yes and it's not uh, properly funded <laughs> in any way shape or that's, form that's per year not for the rollout of the right yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's right so so and and we have haven't got a significant national or state-based response to this we know what uh, there's models of care that have been established um, here in Victoria and nationally around osteoarthritis, uh, but the strategies aren't being funded in terms of their implementation, so a lot needs to happen in that regard. Is is that in any part, I'm sure it's not the total explanation, but do you think there's part of an explanation in that culturally that's the sort of thing that people decide for themselves i'm just going to live with you know my hips playing up it's a bit gammy i'm just going to live with it i'm going to take some ibuprofen now and then and yeah, I think that 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 is true uh, to a degree, but the the reality is the impacts are horrific. Right. I mean, we 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 are speaking to people on a daily basis, which their lives are out of control. So yeah. this this isn't something that's a little bit of arthritis. It yeah. Is okay. a, it's a significant uh, incursion of people's quality of life. Um, so at its at its most extreme, you're you're completely debilitated, I imagine. Well, yeah, it's it's that there is you know there's you know consequences in 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 respect to the mental health aspects, suicidal thoughts, and um, one in twenty deaths in yeah. twenty thirteen was associated with uh, either directly or indirectly with um, a musculoskeletal condition. Um, what what are the, from? Can you just explain that? Like what, how? What does that figure represent in terms of its relationship to death? Well, there's comorbidities associated yeah. with um, with uh, musculoskeletal conditions. So there's a, a range of other um, uh, chronic uh, disease aspects that are associated with that as well. Um, I reckon my guess is that most people, um, whether they're dealing with it themselves or um, know somebody who is, probably their most daily association with things like this is in the workplace where we're seeing uh, increased use of stand-up desks, um, mouse pads are now got the an extra wrist balance on them. There's a range of things in the office, you know, I'm most familiar with office-type workplaces. Um, are workplaces, in your view, responding to the way that they can support their their employees with I think equipment? And I think they're starting to because, um, you know, they see it affects their bottom line, so in terms of productivity. Um, and there's obviously various, um, you know, environments of a workplace. Uh, one of the studies that's uh, been done recently uh, was with the Transport Workers Union and, and Linfox, and they looked at their, right. uh, their workforce and musculoskeletal conditions was the number one uh, issue that uh, has been identified in terms of the health and well-being of uh, their employees. How about we um, have a chat a little bit about how people um, are treated in the first instance. So people are starting to get in contact with either their doctor or organisations like MSK. Um, Then they start having their discussions with their medical professional. 
what does treatment look like uh, in, say, uh, an early stage, Christian? Yeah, uh, so it's probably pretty consistent across all musculoskeletal conditions, but I'll use osteoarthritis as an example because that's my area of research. We have a really big data set in Australia of people who contact the GP called the Beach data set. And what's really fascinating about that is that around about 12% of people turning up to the GP with a new diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis are sent on to the surgeon for for recommendation or, or opinion. Around 22% are referred for imaging and around 25 to 30% are told to take things like anti-inflammatory ibuprofen, as you mentioned before. That doesn't fit with what evidence we have, though, because surgery should be a last resort in these people. Um, imaging is not required for most people. And the pain medications that people typically turn to only have a short-term effect. Mm. If we follow them over a 12-month period, for example, they're no better than a sugar tablet. So it helps in the short term, but not the long term the best evidence we have is for lifestyle changes that might address their sleep but might address their mental health and well-being and those types of things but importantly get them more active and get them doing more exercise and that could be at work but it probably is more so outside of work and there's a couple of key professions in australia that support that so that's physiotherapists and exercise physiologists um, and in australia this beach data set tells us that just three percent are referred to physiotherapists for support in what to do so they're four times more likely to be sent to the surgeon and that's not the gp's fault um, i think that's really important yeah to, to highlight what, what's going on there what 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 explains that yeah. scenario I think there's a few things. There can be variation of what physiotherapy involves, and that's really, really important. And I think a good quality physiotherapy program will involve the education and an exercise component, and so sometimes that isn't delivered. Um, the funding is the biggest thing. So we have a Medicare system that might find, fund five individual treatments to allied health, but this person's typically dealing with comorbidities. So those five have to be counteract or counted up from physio, psychologist, dietitian, etc. Mm. And so it's just grossly inadequate to support that referral. So the GP won't refer them because they don't think the patient's going to be afford, be able to afford that care. Right, right. When we're talking about the the health professions around this, uh, how well is this featured in the training, um, either at the at the student level and then at the professional development level for ongoing updating? Yeah, sure. So in terms of if we look at general practitioners and and medical professionals, um, I think exercise is not strongly focused on broadly. Um, learn a lot about pharmacology, um, learn a lot about different surgical interventions. And then when you graduate, whether you're a GP or a physio, there's lots of free continuing professional development sponsored by pharmaceutical companies <laughs> and, and surgical intervention groups right. and things like that. So you learn a lot about that, but exercise is a bit harder to sell. And so therefore you get less of that. Across physio and other allied health, I think it's varying typically most physios are very good at exercise prescription but they're not always referred to and one of the problems we identified is that there's maybe not that consistency so a program we actually set up for our research is called GLAD which stands for good life with arthritis from Denmark and that's a program where we train physiotherapists in how to educate patients what to educate them about an exercise program that they can give them to get them moving again get them confident that they're not going to be damaging and they can go out and do exercise and exercise programs like this have been shown to reduce the need for joint placement surgeries improve people's quality of life and also importantly reduce their pain uh, so yeah. we're talking about musculoskeletal pain and reliance on pain medications as well what differentiates uh, an exercise program like glad 
um, from an exercise program that a personal trainer at the local gym will put together for somebody? It's a really, really, really good question. And and for some people, going to the gym and engaging with a personal trainer will be all they need to do and they'll get moving. I think the importance of GLAD is it has a strong education component um, to kind of counteract that common fear that pain equals damage um, and also how to pace your exercise. And the other thing that we put into the GLAD program is a lot of what we call joint-specific exercises to rebuild confidence in the knee or rebuild confidence in the hip. And that allows you to go on to do more strength training or do other exercise that you might enjoy. So the key is finding something someone enjoys in the long term, Mm. and it might be dancing, walking, various activities. So GLAD's designed to rebuild their confidence and strength and capacity to do those things. In the long term, they may continue the exercise program given by their physio, or they may just do the things they enjoy because that's physical activity and will keep them going. Will people, like, so if somebody's put on a a treatment plan or a training plan or, or exercise plan of some sort, what can they anticipate? Should they anticipate that this is just about managing the circumstance or does it, quote-unquote, get better or, yes. quote-unquote, cured? So most musculoskeletal conditions are not necessarily cured, so yep. to speak. So osteoarthritis, for example, is not something that's going to disappear, but it can certainly be managed a lot better. Low back pain's the same, and you can certainly have long periods where you have no pain and it's not really affecting your life very much. And so it's teaching people that pain is okay and it's a normal part of life and they can carry on and do things teaching them strategies that they can use when they are in pain not necessarily turning to pain medications and Mm -hmm. those types of things they might just need to think about maybe i've got pain because i'm a bit stressed at work and at home and i'm not sleeping very well and that's why or maybe i'm doing too much exercise and then giving them some exercises that they can use to rebuild their confidence and address things like muscle strength which we know is important for supporting our joints so whether that be our back or our knee so that we can reduce the loads on those joints when we do the things that we need to for work or we want to do for leisure um you're on uh, radiotherapy triple r with uh, myself panel beta and i'm joined in the studio by uh, rob anderson ceo of musculoskeletal australia and um dr uh christian barton from latrobe university we're talking all things musculoskeletal this morning uh, Rob, um, back, back thinking about some of the services that uh, you guys offer um, at um, at uh, MSK. Um, I noticed on your website you've you've got uh, uh, peer support groups going on. What what does that involve? Yeah, that's right. So, um, well, it's, it's traditionally um, people coming together to support each other through whether it's an exercise based activity or an information uh, sharing and support cohort and they, they're um, you know, geographically located or they're located around a specific condition mm-hmm. or they might be around um, a, an activity like warm water exercise or Tai Chi. So, uh, and they exist obviously from a physical point of view but also online as well right so setting up um digital hubs of people who can share information yep I, and my mind went to uh something you said earlier about how this kind of condition these kinds of conditions can affect your mental health and well-being yep. and i imagine that's when peer support is particularly useful right it's it's you know if you're feeling like you're not enjoying life as much as you once did for whatever reason yep. um having people around you who understand what that might be like to experience that's right because it's it is a a hidden condition and and you're right the the ability to relate to another person who you know understands your pain and the difficulties and the practicalities around managing your condition becomes really important 
You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to uh, Radio Therapy RRR Sunday morning. Uh, it's Panel Beater here. Joined in the studio by CEO of Musculoskeletal Australia, Rob Anderson, and Dr. Christian Barton from La Trobe University. Uh, Christian, just off air, you started telling us uh, a little bit about a, um, uh, a couple of interesting case studies. The first one I'd like to go to is this 79-year-old gentleman who was all doom and gloom, but it turned out for the good. Yeah, sure. It's quite a fascinating case. We have many great stories from the GLAD program I mentioned. Um, This is probably a particularly good one. So he's a 79-year-old man who had an x-ray with the GP, had persistent knee pain for a while, wasn't able to run anymore. So he actually ran up until his sort of early 70s and around 77 he was like yeah I want to run again I can't every time I try and run my knee hurts and had an x-ray and the x-ray showed moderate osteoarthritis moderate to severe osteoarthritis referred on to a surgeon and the first surgeon he saw said well you probably need to have your joint replaced we need to change this um, and he didn't want to have a joint replacement so he sought a second opinion the next surgeon said to him look you probably need to try some other things first which is what best practice is let's try some exercise programs you could consider injections and other things but let's just manage your exercise to start with and so he did that for a while went along for a couple of years and was better but not that good and still couldn't get back to running and so he enrolled in the GLAD program at Cabrini Hospital and he did the program there and by the end of the program felt much more confident in his knee which is what the program's designed to do continued to progress his exercise program and then I actually consulted with him one of my specialty areas is running and we gave him a bit more guidance with exercise to build his strength and muscle capacity a bit more still just doing home exercises so he didn't have to go to the gym or anything and about six months after he started that process we got him to start returning to running and then we actually promised him that if he got to the point of running 5k's I'd go and do park run with him and sure enough just before Christmas last year he went down and he did park run for the first time ever and he now does park run every two weeks and the reason he only does it every two weeks is he still likes to do a long run and he's back up to a 10 or 12 kilometer run every two weeks so at the age of 79 what, what what explains his recovery? I mean, obviously, it's a, um, a an exercise program that's informed by you know trial and error on your part or you, you and your colleagues' part. Um, is there something particular about his physiology that makes it him yeah. more responsive? So I think the, the biggest barrier he had initially was he was just so worried about the pain and that might be damaging his knee, which is a common thing with musculoskeletal pain. And we know that those things are poorly related. And as a result, he would just avoid activity. So not just running, but avoid maybe exercises that might rebuild control in his knee, rebuild strength. And so he never built the capacity to be able to mm. run again. So he'd go from sitting on the couch, not doing a lot, to trying to run again. Yeah. And he'd develop pain. So it was just trying to change some of those things. And through his mental health and well-being, as a result of doing more exercise, he sleeps a bit better. He feels a bit more excited about life. And that yeah. has a big impact on pain. If we're in a bad mood, yeah. pain's much worse. Yeah. If we're in a good mood, pain's not so bad. The analogy I always use with people, if you hit your shin on something, in a bad mood, whatever you hit, you want to break it. <laughs> in, the bin. Yeah. in a good mood, you move on. So I think it was more so managing the psychology part of pain first and then addressing the physiological part of getting him stronger again to be able to run again. And so he's not taking any... Um, anti-inflammatories or no, he's taking no anti-inflammatories he's had one pain flare up in the past 12 months or so and it turns out that he was on holidays and also cycling every day um, right. and so it was probably just an overload factor and once he stopped cycling each day he got just went back to his running again and he's he's been fine he's he's still disappointed himself because he can only run a 31 minute 5k he's 79 yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> Good on him. <laughs> hey, um, can we go to the other end of the spectrum and, and talk us through some experiences you may have had with uh, younger people? Because yeah. um, we're not only dealing with age, old age issues here at all, are we? Yeah, so important point that Rob pointed out before is most people with musculoskeletal pain are of a working age, um, and so that's all the way through the spectrum and even goes all the way back to adolescence. So a lot of people will start to develop their musculoskeletal pains around the age of 10 or 12, um, and often they're just dismissed as, oh. as growing pains. Yeah. Um, but what we do know from some great research from some colleagues in Denmark is that this group, most, most of them have persistent musculoskeletal pain when they develop pain around that age. So it doesn't just go away. And traditionally in adolescence, they've been given exercise programs to do and they've been given other things to do and of course we know changing behavior of adolescents is quite challenging um they typically <laughs> don't do these exercise programs sure. and what we've learned in more recent times from research is that even those exercise programs are better than not doing them but that still leads to maybe not great long-term outcomes and so some more recent research from colleagues i work with in denmark a um, researcher by the name of associate professor michael raffleif he looked at more of a load management approach to these adolescents and the idea is not to give them lots of physio exercises but to teach them not to do too many sports so they might be training three or four or five times a week playing three times a week because they play for their school they play for their local team and they play for a rep team in their sport and you ask them the question do your stars or your idols do the same amount of exercise and they go no well, you probably shouldn't be doing that much exercise yeah. either because they're overloading. So educating them about that, but equally you have to get all of their coaches on board because yeah. they have to communicate across these different teams, their parents on board. And then also talking to them about the other non-physical things. They might be stressed out because they're having a fight with their friend at school or they've just had their first boyfriend or girlfriend and they've broken up or, mm. or they're stressed out because of their, their schoolwork. And so managing all of those things, de-threatening that experience of pain, explaining that pain doesn't mean you're damaging things too badly, let's manage all these other things slowly get back to your sports and things you like to do but just be a little bit more sensible with them and then they'll typically do quite well how would um a parent deal with uh their teenager um who is experiencing some kind of pain you know maybe they've just come back from footy training tennis training whatever it might be um and they've they're saying they're a bit sore or just the parent just observes them moving you know as if they're sore is, first of all, is there such a thing as growing pains? And at what point is that just normal? And at what point should it be investigated? Yeah, so I think what point is is it growing pains or what point is it normal? Certainly there are growth factors that occur. In adolescence, we have changes to our growth plates where we have basically joints that are partial joints and then they fuse together. So in the knee, we have some. In the heel, we have some. And we also have situations where kids grow really fast. So their bone structure is growing. They're getting taller hmm. and their muscles are maybe struggling to keep up with that a little bit. And maybe that explains some of the reasons they may get some pain. So it can be more susceptible. And in those periods of time, we may just need to reduce the amount of exercise and yeah. load that they're doing um, and so for the parent if the kid is persistently sore in the same area then that tells you you probably need to do something um, and that might just be simply managing all those other loads and exercise if it's a one-off thing try not to freak the kid out I've learned this as a as an adult right with kids I've got three young kids now my four-year-old or nearly four-year-old falls down on the ground and it looks bad but I know he hasn't actually hurt himself that well if I just walk over and go oh that was a bit of a shame are you okay 
then you'll usually be pretty good. But if yeah. you go over and go <gasps> and panic and yeah, right. start to drive that fear, which a parent can do for an adolescent, or actually we can do that for our colleagues and friends around us with musculoskeletal pain, then that typically makes their pain experience much worse. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I, you've just given me a great excuse to um, have a flashback. I real, I'm recalling my experience at that age. I, in my class photo of year 10... I reckon I was up the front sitting down, you know, the, the kid at the front holding the, the, the sign plate that says, you know, Year 10, Miss Delahunty or whatever it is. Um, two years later, at the end of high school, I was in the back row standing up and I remember having sore knees and I'm just having that flashback right now. So I'm not alone. No. <laughs> Good news. Um, so, we've, so we've got the uh, uh, older, we've got the younger. What's a, what might a, uh, a workplace scenario look like? Yes, you can have varying types of workplace scenarios. So we might have an occupation that requires you to climb up and down a lot of ladders, do a lot of bending, a lot of lifting. And so you might end up from a result of doing that heavy lifting with a sore back or you might end up with sore knees from climbing up and down the ladders. And typically that's often a management of load issue as well. But alongside that, there can often be a psychological thing going on in terms of external stresses of either your boss's not getting on with you very well or maybe something else at home's going on and we know that there's those types of factors and things that predict people who stay off work for example as a result of musculoskeletal pain not the x-ray or the scan or whatever it might be so that can be a typical case and usually it's just to do with combination of other factors around combined with maybe doing too much of something too quickly and then it's the same as a sports scenario we just want to manage that and maybe give some alternate jobs to do so someone's not doing the same thing all day every day but telling them not to do it because they might damage themselves that'll typically make their pain worse so it's about gradual reintegration and of course and rob probably gets this um, when people call up a lot of people will develop workplace musculoskeletal pain as a result of traumatic injury at work as well and then that's a whole i guess policy and procedures thing for the workplace you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia Radiotherapy on Triple R. Just a couple of minutes uh, to wrap up um, today's show with um, uh, Rob Anderson and Christian Barton talking all things musculoskeletal. Rob, uh, in the short time we've got left, just um, how do we point people in the direction of MSK and what you guys have to offer? Okay, it's really easy. We're a charitable organisation. We've got a lot of uh, support services that are available. We have a national helpline uh, that's a 1800 number. I'll, I'll give it out now. 1800. Yeah, 1-800- 263-265. You've got trained uh, nurses that'll be able to assist you there. We've also got uh, a website which is msk.org.au and there's a lot of great uh, evidence-based information. There's nothing on there that's not uh, proven research. <laughs> and, uh, and We like evidence. Exactly. It, it actually does mean a lot. Cause that, well, I guess that's another issue. There's a lot of misconceptions about what's going to help you out there mm. and uh, it's important that it's, it's research-based. We have a pain guide we have um uh, an ability to engage you through social media and uh and we're doing a lot of i guess uh support in the in the research area and perhaps christian might want to um talk about one of the things we're partnering with him yep sure so research project we're currently doing working with msk australia relates to management of neosteoarthritis and this offers a physiotherapist led program um and so if you want to get in touch about that that'll give you a free physiotherapy treatment and you could get in touch with the helpline which rob mentioned before or feel free to email me c.barton at latrobe.edu.au 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.